Welcome to Tales from the Rec Room, where down here we call it a pocket full of ass. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, and I'm the next Josie Mitchell. I'm Kelsey, and I'm uh, the Reverend's daughter, Judy. <laughs> well, welcome to the new show, Kelsey. Uh, you've been on Peak Show before to talk, uh, I tried to go alliteration here, sports, Sandler, and Spaceballs. <laughs> um, but now you're coming back to this kind of new-ish show, Tales from the Rec Room, uh, to we're back in teen movie town with an episode on what I think is like the strangest little teen movie from the peak of teen movie time, which is Get Over It. And uh, now we've talked a lot on the show about like the evolution of the late 90s, early aughts teen movie craze. And this is one of the era that I do think represents the fizzling out. Look, I don't want to blame 9-11 for everything, but I think I blame 9-11 ultimately for the fizzling out of teen movies. Um, maybe the last gasp before a fizzling out. But the reason I reached out to you, Kelsey, is because... Um, for a long time, I thought I was the only person who really remembered this movie. Um, I'm a big dunst head. Um, but you and your friend Jason have done an episode about this uh, on uh, of Get Over It. Uh, actually, a double billing with another long forgotten favorite of mine, Shriek, if you know what I did last Friday the 13th. But on your podcast, uh, Ruin My Life. So can you tell me about why you guys chose Get Over It for your podcast? Um, well, we chose it because it is probably one of my like top 10 favorite movies of all time um does that mean it's a good movie not necessarily but <laughs> i love it a lot um and it was my turn to uh to pick the thing that we would ruin each other's lives with and then um we were watching it together and i was i had this overwhelming urge to like explain myself about it about like why i liked it and like i like not really def- Expensive, but like just being like I want you to know that this is the thing I love and like I need you to understand that if you like disparage it in a non like <laughs> nice way it will hurt me <laughs> um but Jason when we're watching he's like I I recognized in you something that I do myself with the movie uh Shriek, if you know what I did last Friday the 13th and it just felt like the right pairing they came out around the same time um and kind of, you know, are forgotten by all but a small, a small population of people. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of why we chose it uh, as far as um, as far as for the podcast. I think uh, one of the reasons that it is one of my, uh, you know, top movies of, you know, that I enjoy of all time are because it sort of pairs something, a lot of specific things I liked about um, the era and the genre that it's in, uh, you know, Kirsten Dunst, this like sort of vague Shakespearean framing, the really low, low stakes romance <laughs> plot. Um, and then some things I loved about sort of like older movies that I'd been introduced to, um, sort of these like wacky prop based gags, like big musical numbers and kind of like, um, like really just interesting, um, framing and and uh storytelling devices within the in the movie and and it's very it's very heightened yeah it's very wacky and like that you have like the little thought bubbles and stuff like it's funny because i think a lot of the things in this movie were very boilerplate but then also a lot of things in this movie were not like other teen movies of of that era it's a very not like other girls kind of teen movie um uh, also, I have to say, because I remember listening to the episode of Room My Life that you guys did on these two movies. I think this was kind of like an early mid-COVID episode that you guys did. It was a really early COVID episode. I re-listened to it yesterday. I, yeah, because I was <laughs> listening to it 
while I was working out in my parents' garage. And there's only one reason I would have been working out in my parents' garage, which is the gyms were closed. Um, But I did you guys point out on that episode, because I can't quite remember it, that like, because I'm thinking, did they do this because there was the Coolio connection? <laughs> we did because not. It is in both of those movies. Yeah, we did not actually do it because of that connection, but we do have a moment realizing that Coolio is in both of these movies in in that in that episode. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty early. It was I think summer 2020 because it was after we weren't like we were allowed to see each other again, <laughs> but it was uh, uh, before like full quarantine was over. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in the, uh, as as I gathered from TV, which is how I learn about America, I think you guys called the concept COVID pods in the US more commonly. We called it your bubble. You could have 10 people in your bubble. Yeah. Uh, or like they expanded it from five to 10 at one point and everyone got real excited. Um, yeah. yeah. We were uh, in like so- a six person bubble at that point with like three I think it was supposed to be five but we had like households of two people so it didn't really you know (laughs) um we like basically my parents would have disowned us if we didn't put them in our bubble (laughs) so now before we go forward Tales from the Rec Room has kept one important tradition from Peak Show which is plugs up front so Kelsey can you tell us where we can find you online and read your thoughts keeping in mind that I don't know if Twitter has imploded by now we're recording this July 11th um I will be on Twitter until it implodes. <laughs> you know, last week Liz referred to herself as the band playing on the Titanic. Yeah, no, that's how I feel about Twitter. I don't have the wherewithal or the willpower to like totally move until it's completely necessary. Mm-hmm. So I will be on Twitter at Kelsey Rebecca. You can find me there, mostly screaming about sports. Um, uh, if you're listening to this in the next month, it will probably be mostly women's soccer content. So have fun with that. Um, um, and then I do have a podcast with my friend Jason. Uh, it's called Ruin My Life. It is currently on a schedule of we release an episode whenever we fucking want to. <laughs> um, uh, so there's but there's 90 episodes of Bat Catalog. If you would like to listen to it, Bree's been on it on a wonderful episode. I do highly recommend um, and then the other thing I'm going to plug, because he won't do it himself anywhere, is uh, Jason's new Substack, The Secret History of Modern Life. Uh, dot it's really good. Uh, Substack.com. So if you are into movies, especially like the kind of content that this this show is covering, that's that's kind of what he's talking about there. He just did a really great uh, um, essay on The Descent, which I loved, so highly recommend that. And that is all of my plugs. <laughs> Super. Okay, so... Let's go through kind of the where and when of when you first saw this movie. So did you see this movie within the first year that it came out or afterward, kind of theater or home video? So I'm pretty sure I saw this um, after it came out. I have kind of a black hole of, of memory when it comes to like middle school for a lot of a lot of reasons, mostly mm-hmm. trauma related. <laughs> um, um, so I don't remember exactly when I saw it, but I'm pretty sure it was probably eighth or ninth grade. Um, which would be the end of middle school, beginning of high school, around 2003, 2004. Um, uh, And I think I either saw it at, like, a movie rental store and just saw Kirsten Dunst and was like, yeah, I'll try that. Or I came across it on basic cable, which doesn't quite fit the bill of this this format. I think think basic cable absolutely fits the bill. (laughs) Yeah. um, So I think it was, you know, it was on like, you know, TBS or TNT or maybe even like, you know, uh, what at that time might have been ABC Family. 
I don't know. You're asking the wrong gal. I didn't yeah, have those you channels. Yeah, you are, and you are Canadian, so I don't even know if they are the same channels. <laughs> we, you know, we do a weird thing where we pick up the content, but then sub our commercials over it. Yeah. That's basically what we do. Yeah. We call it Sim Sub. Uh, uh, so... So yeah, it was so it was I'm, one or one or both of those. I definitely did rent it at one point. <laughs> um, I just don't remember if that was the first time I saw it. Yeah, I know that I saw it within the first year that it came out because I have an experience, and I'll I'll touch on this later of bringing this to a sleepover in two thousand and two. So uh, and I had already seen it at this point. Now that said, I don't think I saw it in the theaters. Now. 2001, uh, like spring 2001, was the sixth grade for me, and by this point. And I don't know if this, I genuinely don't know if this is considered sad or cool, but by the sixth grade, I was going to see movies by myself. Um, I, and for a long time, actually, this is really funny. And I do remember the movie this was for. It was Meet the Parents. My parents dropped me off. And when my mom picked me up, she's like, who'd you go with? I was like, no one. And I was like, you went to the movies by yourself? Like, how long have you been doing this? Um, and, and it's like... I, I don't say this in a feel sorry for me way. I didn't have a lot of friends and most of my friends, I didn't even like that much. So if I went to see the mo- a movie with anyone, it was with my brother. And so I definitely could not have gotten my brother to go to see a teen movie. I also don't know, like our local cinema had six screens, which is not nothing um, for a town of 45,000 people. I'd say that's an appropriate amount of screens, but you don't get everything. And so you'll prioritize the blockbusters. I don't even think I was aware of this movie when it was in the theaters, but it definitely like in the home movie rental days, because like, I think we all have the experience of like, you know, we go to Blockbuster every Friday night with our family or whatever. And I was, you know, in my post 10 things about you loving teen movies stage, I was like, yes, this is going to make me mature teenager. I'm going to middle school next year. I need to watch this movie about teenagers making out. So it was a definite like, grab it from the from the dvd bin kind of thing and probably like probably rented it a couple times even oh so yeah for sure so when you first saw this what were your go-to movie snacks during that era like if we are talking at the theater which i didn't see this at the theater before talking at the theater it was always sour patch watermelon because for some reason there was like this time in my life when you could only get the watermelon sour patch at like specific gas stations and at the movie theater (laughs) um and i loved them and i always i always uh uh ate them i think at home my go-to movie snacks are like what my current like just snack food is which is like dry cereal um i was i I was dry cereal yeah i was a latchkey kid so like i ate a lot of like you know cereal like craft mac and cheese uh you know grilled cheeses uh eggo waffles (laughs) pizza pockets things i could make in the microwave basically Mm -hmm. um so yeah, so like the, like the the movie rental place, which was a movie gallery from my mom's house, was like we lived in like a, a subdivision, um, and there was a a little like sort of shopping plaza, like basically next door to the the entrance to the subdivision, and the movie place was in there, so I could walk to the video rental place on my own, before I had a car or anything, and like mm-hmm. get whatever movies I wanted, walk back. And that was you know that was my life, <laughs> that was my my weekend if I wasn't you know playing a sport or going to see a movie with my friends or going to the mall because we always went to the mall (laughs) oh absolutely like like uh, do teenagers still go to the mall um (laughs) i mean i think possibly more in canada than the u.s because i know i read a lot about the death of the mall in the Mm -hmm. u.s um and 
the one thing is, so Sears did finally close in Canada, and that was a big anchor store of a lot of malls, but we still have something called The Bay, which I'd say in terms of, like, the footprint is similar to a Macy's. Um, it's actually, like, it's it's a descendant of, like, Canada's oldest company, which is the Hudson Bay Trading Company. But um, so there are still a lot of, like, anchor stores. I would say, like, in Toronto, like... Uh, weirdly, when one of my friends from New York, uh, Chelsea Fagan of the Financial Diet, when she when they came to Toronto for the first time, right before everything shut down, she was so excited to go to the Eaton Center, which is the mall in downtown Toronto, because she's like, New York doesn't, New York City doesn't have malls, and she's like, and I heard that, like, and she's like, it was an amazing mall, Brie. Like, how are you not here all the time? And I'm like, I, I forget that people like this mall. Like, Toronto has yeah. some good malls. New York City um, has yeah. malls, but they kind of suck. <laughs> there was one, like, I found out that the quote-unquote mall, like, by which was right by the hotel where I stayed on my honeymoon, was considered a mall, which is like near Lincoln Circle. Um, there, but there's like a Whole Foods in it. Like I went there to go to Whole Foods and get like yeah. the almond milk that I can't get in Canada. I'm like, that's a mall. It's a fucking Whole Foods. Um, <laughs> Lincoln Center, like that area of uh, Manhattan, is like the one area that I'm never in. <laughs> so I could not tell you. But not I'm that I'm in Manhattan a ton anymore. I'm a basic all. bitch for New York because I fucking love Central Park. I so. mean, Central Park's one of the greatest parks of all time on it is. Of, in on the entire planet. Um, Prospect Park is great too, so you know, get out there if you have a chance. <laughs> I gotta get back to New York, man. Um, so my go-to movie snacks. I'd said like around ten things I hate about you era. I was all about like fine. I finally came to the realization that chocolate and strawberries together were fantastic. Um, and I would always have a pudding cup and put a strawberry or some chunks of strawberries in it (laughs) but i know that this was after i moved to timmins when i actually had a blockbuster in my life and um my favorite thing to get from blockbuster was actually uh twizzlers pull and peel like i I love twizzlers pull and peel like they're so good i'm a fidgeter i'm a fidgeter i need food i can play with but they're they're better too so i don't like i don't actually like regular twizzlers or red vines because they're uh cherry flavored and I don't really like right. cherry flavored things. And they're also not very good <laughs> idea to me. But, I've never had a red vine. We don't have them in Canada. Um, but I mean, they're basically the same as Twizzlers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people who would probably heartily disagree with that. But <laughs> in my head, they are. Um, but Twizzlers pull and peel were strawberry flavored, mm-hmm. which was better. <laughs> they had this very like mild sweet flavor. Um, mm-hmm. I also just like when you can get them in these jumbo ass bags that had a real good like whack to them. It yeah. was like a phone book. Yeah, um, it was okay. heavy. So we'll elaborate further on what we loved about this movie, uh, what we love about it now. But what did like young Kelsey love about this movie? You know, young Kelsey was, like, already kind of on the Dunst train. Um, Ah. In that, like, you could not escape Bring It On in my middle school life, which, Mm -hmm. like, why would you want to? It's an iconic film. Um, And I could talk about it for a long time. I have. There's also ruined my life on that, so. (laughs) Um, uh, But I also was kind of in this, like, I want to be, like, kind of like, I was listening to your episode about... um, Uh, 10 things I hate about you in preparation Mm -hmm. for this just I I was like I kind of want to be like the not like other girls like the cool offbeat artsy girl and so I'd really like invested in um loving the virgin suicides as a movie because it was like you know it took me forever to see that movie I did not see that movie until I was finished my undergrad yeah so and I it was like it was you know I I actually don't love it as much as I 
wanted to love it but like I still yeah. really enjoyed it at the time and like you know so I was like you know Kirsten Dunst I was already on her train obviously and um uh and also part of that for me being like cool and alternative and smart but like not dorky was like we were doing uh you know in eighth grade we actually did Midsummer Night's Dream um oh. as the Shakespeare that we read um I read a Shakespeare like almost every year until like I did in junior year um mm-hmm. and so like the idea that I like wanted to like sort of and plus like after the um you know the 10 things I hate about you being such a hit and that it was and like I decided that I was gonna be like I know what Shakespeare is and I'm gonna read Shakespeare for fun and like you know I'm gonna know the stories and stuff and so like I thought at the time that this that Midsummer was my favorite Shakespeare um it's not but (laughs) but you know 13 year old me thought that it was um uh thought that it was the bard's greatest comedy as uh Martin Short says in this um again it's not but (laughs) um (laughs) I just hadn't seen Kenneth Branagh's 1993 adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing which is forever my favorite Shakespeare adaptation and my favorite Shakespeare play Mm -hmm. um uh, yet so there was that part of it and then I think like one of the things that I you know this this isn't something that I like clocked at the time um, but it was very much that like there wasn't this idea that like it was like the popular kids versus the nerds versus you know it, there wasn't like this sort of like click it was just like these are people and they're in high school and they're kind of boring and that's I okay. I forgot <laughs> until I rewatched this that Ben is a varsity, like again, much like 10 Things I Hate About You really like downplays the fact that Kat is a, on a varsity team and appears to be a very good athlete. Yeah. That ben is a varsity basketball player. He, we don't know how cool Ben is supposed to be. Yeah, and I I, I like that, you know, that Burke yeah. is just like, he's like playing basketball is just another I thing that he does. I keep calling him Ben. His I mean, actor's name is Ben. He looks like such a fucking Ben. I mean, that's good because he is a Ben, technically. <laughs> and and Berkland, what a what bad kind of made-up name. name. Berklanders. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would will say that, like, when I got it, again, this was me, like, yeah, I want to watch, like, sexy teens. Um, <laughs> you picked the wrong movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... And I, so I was a little bit like, well, this is too silly. This is too slapstick. Um, However, I liked how funny it was. It was extremely biting. Um, And I will say that I think I like it more as an adult than I did as a kid. But um, yeah, and I'm also just thinking about like mandatory Shakespeare, because for me, like, I don't know about you, but for us in our English classes, uh, I think most Ontario kids each year there is a mandatory Shakespeare play that you study. Now, it's different for everyone, but what I find interesting looking back is that in none of the years did we ever do a comedy. That's Um, interesting. And then it's interesting also to me because in ninth grade, pretty much everyone I know, whatever school board they were part of, did Romeo and Juliet because it is regarded as the quote-unquote easiest. When if you actually go back and look at a lot, like a lot of the politics of Romeo and Juliet are much more complicated. I think it's that Romeo and Juliet is easiest to oversimplify. Yeah, we uh, we did um, Midsummer in in eighth grade, which was, I think, good because I think it is actually probably the easiest mm-hmm. um it's yeah. also quite short which is uh which is nice um and Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade which I did not enjoy at the time and then I mm-hmm. I feel like we did one sophomore no we did one junior year too but I don't remember what it was ours went uh and I am shocked that they still teach this in schools um I will say given the how 
monochromatic my area was. Um, but uh, Merchant of Venice was 10th grade. Um, and that is a controversial one, OBS. Yeah. Um, and then 11th, I switched school boards. We did Macbeth. Um, Macbeth was hard for me. I found Macbeth very difficult. Um, and but I got good marks because I was an ass kisser. But, and then <laughs> 12th grade was Othello. And Othello actually remains my favorite. We did King Lear in 12th grade, which I actually really enjoyed a lot more than I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I uh, shortly, like a couple years after I moved here to New York in, uh, so I was like 24 probably. Um, my roommate, not the one I currently live with, well, I lived with her at that time, but it was a different roommate we were also living with at the time. We decided for this year, we would, for a year, we would try and see all of Shakespeare's shows, um, which in New York is like pretty feasible if you're willing to like see some weird shit, um, which we did. Um, and that really like, you know, cemented the fact that, you know, even though like when I was trying to get into Shakespeare as like a middle school girl, like it was kind of, you know, for... The wrong reasons, let's say, but like I, I really gained a new appreciation of his like of what he did and what he contributed to the canon. And mm-hmm. I do think that his comedies are really overlooked for how like seminal they are in like what comedy is. Like Yeah. And um I'm so surprised that like we had this whole slew of these of these sort of comedies taking on, um, these teen comedies taking on classic literature, Shakespeare, in this time period from, like, Clueless to about, like, let's say maybe whenever She's the Man came out. That was 2005 or six. Um, There's also, I know it's not teen, and I know it's not a movie, but it's still really important to, to understand. You're, you're going to know everything you need to know about me by the fact that this is even a reference I'm reaching for, but... <laughs> At some point, Just Shoot Me did an episode that was a take on King Lear. Wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But you're right that this was a moment in yeah. pop culture. And like it had, and we haven't really returned to it, which is kind of surprising to me. Yeah. Um, so, so was this... Uh, also, every time you say Midsummer Night's Dream, I'm realizing how much I want to do, I, and I'm sure someone has already done like a trauma film or something like this, but I want to do a Midsummer Night's Dream, like <laughs> just a <laughs> bunch of little fairies hanging hanging out on a compound in Sweden, smashing all people's faces. Um, so was this something that you shared with your friends or were you kind of on your own in liking this movie? This was definitely a movie that, like, once I saw it and loved it, like, I wanted to show it to everyone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, like, it became, you know, a movie that, like, I brought to sleepovers and, you know, was like, oh, we should rent this. Um, I realized, actually, when I was prepping for this, that I don't own this on physical media. So I literally Mm -hmm. bought it today because, like, I... I own, like, 20 movies, first of all. Like, I do not have a lot of movies. Um, Four of them are from uh, the era uh, that I love of Kirsten Dunst. Bring it on. Uh, The Virgin Suicides. Yeah. Drop Dead Gorgeous. You have Drop Dead Gorgeous on DVD? Oh, my God. Yeah. Also, if you want to do an episode on this, like, please invite me back. (laughs) That is the plan, man. Yeah. Yeah. so, like, this this particular era of Kirsten Dunst um, from about, like, 1999 to, like, 2003 is, I think, the first Kirsten Dunst renaissance. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> there there are multiple, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I realized that I didn't own this on physical media. So I just, I went to Amazon and bought it, like, immediately. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I need to own it. I don't know why I don't. Especially with, like, things just coming off the internet. Yeah. Um, 
so I, like I said, I didn't have a lot of friends during this era. I'm going to turn my lamp on. Um, but I also did... Oh, my lamp's not plugged in. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> it's just going to get darker and darker. It's it's storming outside. So, oh. um, But uh, I did bring this to a sleepover in 2002 because I started middle school in the fall of 2001. And I was like, I'm going to make friends. And I, it's only like... When I think about this, I look back and realize, oh my god, this was my first frenemy. This girl named Karina. We were only friends because our lockers were next to each other. Thank you, alphabetical ordering. Um, and she very clearly like only invited me to things out of like obligation and stuff. And it was her birthday party, and everyone got to pick a movie. And I was like, oh, you guys are gonna love this movie. And you know that awful feeling of when you are showing people a movie and everyone clearly hates it. They, no one else at the party made it to the end. And then also like after the next day, like I was very much feeling the hostility at this party. And so the next day at breakfast, I was just like hanging out with her siblings, like. So what are you guys into? <laughs> um, and then like a week later, she goes, she goes, by the way, everyone at that, everyone at that party that met you that night hated you. And also my mom thinks you're annoying. And wow. Like, oh my God. That's fucked so, up. Like, and it's really weird. The, just about the only other thing I remember about this party was that we watched this movie and then um, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it had like David Duchovny and Sean William Scott and a few other people playing like alien hunter types. This sounds really familiar, but I yeah. cannot tell you. I can't remember. Yeah, this is but, definitely something yeah. that I, I shared with people and that, you mm-hmm. know, I, you know, I, I went to the same school from uh, like kindergarten to 12th grade. So I, mm-hmm. I had a lot of the same friends for a lot of that time. Um, and I know that uh, two of my friends, at least like uh, who I'm still friends with, like both enjoyed this movie as much as I did, which was nice. Um mm-hmm. And I think some of that is seeing it, like me making them watch it in high school, because <laughs> I think it's 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 one of those things where you just have to see it at the right time. Yeah. Um. Um. It was Evolution, by the way, that Sean Williams got David Duchovny movie, <laughs> and Orlando Jones. That was a real pop culture moment. Yeah. Sean William um, Scott and Orlando Jones. That's a very pop culture moment. That's. Yes. I'm like that was what 2002, maybe. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um yeah, so it's definitely one of those things that I show people. It's one of those things that when I went to college was like, okay, here's, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, but I definitely know the feeling of, like, when you show someone a movie and they don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, last year for my birthday, uh, I did, like, a Kelsey's Favorites movie marathon and just was like, I'm going to be in my house. Here are the times. Here's what I'm watching. Come join for anything. Oh, that's such a great idea. Um, it was really fun. But one of the movies that I had was uh, Crazy in Alabama, which is a, like, early 2000s. It's weird. <laughs> movie mm-hmm. starring Melanie Griffith. Um and about a woman who murders her husband, cuts his head off, and drives across country with it. And then it's also about, like, uh, you know, segregation and race relations in southern United States. Um, and, like, spousal abuse and stuff. So it's, like, a really hard movie to explain to people. And then and I love it. But, like, I was watching it with my friends, and they're like, this is so weird. <laughs> like, I don't get this at all. And yeah. I'm like, you know what? That's okay. I'm an adult enough and you're all my adult friends. It's okay that you don't get it. If if I was 14, I would be very upset. <laughs> but um, so, but yeah, I know I know that feeling. And, and I, I definitely got a little of that feeling when I showed uh, Jason this movie. But yeah. less less of the like feeling bad and more like, 
you know what? Good for you. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to explain because like for me now, the appeal of this movie is I liked it when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, that is literally the only appeal you need. Like my um, my husband always keeps talking about this movie that he and his sister loved, um, Drop Dead Fred, which I haven't actually seen. It's a weird pop culture blind spot for me because when I tell people I haven't seen it, they either shrug just like you did, like I, me either, mm-hmm. or they're like, what? You haven't seen Drop Dead Fred? Which, for some reason, he always misremembers the name as Right Said Fred. And I'm like, no, that's I'm Too Sexy, you beautiful idiot. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so, like, I, it's like your justification is just you liked this when you were a certain age. And that's fine. That's that's the reason I like anything. Um, so, in terms of, context- as talking about pop culture moments, in terms of contextualizing this era, like, I would go back, you know, uh, the aforementioned episode on uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, and to a lesser extent, the center stage episode, um, but the rise of the late 90s teen movie. The quick version of this is, I mean, teen movies were never not popular. I mean, I would say they're not popular now, but up until this point, they were popular, but there was a big influx of them in the late 90s, early 2000s, which was driven by two major factors. Actually, three major factors if you count that Kirsten Dunst rules. Um, <laughs> she she carried a genre. Um, no, uh, one was uh, major motion picture studios acquiring smaller indie studios or distribu- distribution arms and the rise of DVD players, like the rise of home movies and resulting in a surge of home media and video popularity. So teen movies, with a few exceptions, they weren't known box office moneymakers, but this was the era where being a box office moneymaker mattered far less. So like they weren't expensive movies to produce. You could possibly get some good mileage out of them in the home video market, which doesn't mean that every teen movie did do that. But like what I find interesting is looking at movies like this, like this movie was kind of a failure. It um, lost money at the box office. Like, it did not it did. make back its budget. <laughs> Which was a pretty small budget. Yeah. Comparatively. Um, but, like, because, because like, even not making back your budget, when your budget is not huge, and, like, this didn't have a huge build-up action-sized marketing campaign, like, it's not a flop. Teen movies aren't or weren't regarded as flops. Like, no one talks about teen movies as flops. Like, the best you can... The worst you can say about a teen movie that was unsuccessful in the 2000s is no one remembers it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so maybe that's also why we're kind of like unicorns about this movie is because we actually remember this fucking movie. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I, you know, one of the reasons that I put down that I, I liked this, the young me liked this movie was, you know, and I tried to put it into words, but like the first thing I thought of was like, when I watched this movie the first time, I felt like someone made this movie for me. Like, mm-hmm. I felt like it was for me specifically in my special girl person, not like other girls way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it like the movie, it's funny because it, it kind of alternates between being a little cotton candy and having a little edge to it. And I liked the parts where it had a little edge. I think where this movie and I have so I have this so much in my notes, but where this movie kind of fails for me objectively is that no one is sure how serious they're supposed to play it. And I think that is a bit of a flaw in the movie. Um, But like, I also just want to talk about the cast of the movie because actually I think the cast, the ones that I like the best are the ones that realize that this movie is supposed to be wild. Um, Because you have like a cast of young actors who are largely like people that the studios are very much trying to make happen. Um, your, Your three only real adult roles, the adult roles are just 
powerhouse performers. I think they're the like consistent thing in this that works. And like looking at the young people in this movie, like you could tell like Def Soul Records was trying to push Cisco out there so badly. Like remember Cisco? No, this was before Thong Song came out. But I mean, it was right before. Yeah, it was though, right? right before. Yeah, yeah. like it, they, I mean, they weren't trying to say "Remember Cisco." You were saying "Remember oh, Cisco." Oh no, I understand like, yes. now. <laughs> <laughs> but like, this was even like the first one of the first major roles for noted nepo baby Colin Hanks, who I will try as much as possible to refer to as not Chet Hanks. Um, <laughs> it was also an early film role for Mila Kunis. Like she'd been on that '70s show, but she hadn't really been in movies at this point. Um, Shane West, who would go on one year later to be in the movie that we all inexplicably loved, which is A Walk to Remember. Uh, ben Foster, he was a real unknown at the time to lead the movie. And, and like, Zoe Saldana, who, like, you know, the only one who really had a paper trail was Kirsten Dunst. And, like, I think they were really lucky to get, like, they had to have shot this on her lunch breaks between <laughs> Bring It On and Spider-Man. I mean, probably. <laughs> she was booked and busy. Uh, yeah, I think I think this was probably shot like slightly before. Like, I think maybe I I don't know. Like, it's hard. the The production uh, the production was only two months. Uh, it was like the summer of two thousand. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think it it was. If production was two months, can I ask, did they get Ed Begley Jr. and Swoozy Kurtz for two hours? Because that's why it feels like they have, like, they, okay, I'll just say right now, they are the best parts of the movie. Oh, God, yeah. The the bit at the beginning of the, Coolio knows what I'm talking about, right? Just the, the cut to his horrified look is probably the best bit in the movie. And I'm just like, why aren't there more of, the, of these parent characters? They're the best the thing is like i think they could have used one or two more scenes but i think Mm -hmm. more than that would have been bordering on overuse overkill yeah yeah i Um, totally agree uh but you know i totally agree with you that the the adult characters uh suzy kurtz and ed billigy jr especially and martin short and martin short are are what make this movie what it is and what make Mm -hmm. it so uh wonderful to me that's the thing with with teen movies is you have to really think about your adult roles because even look at like 10 things larry miller alice and janney like they're fantastic i literally um, have in my notes like yeah the, I feel like the mo- the teen movies that you remember, they have these really memorable adult characters. And when I was thinking... Mean girls, you know? Yeah, like, when I was thinking about Ed Begley Jr. and Susie Kurtz, I immediately thought of um, Stanley Tucci and Patricia Clarkson in Easy in A. Easy A, yeah. Which is another, I think, you know, spiritual successor to this genre. And maybe, totally. like, the last kind of movie I remember really fitting in this genre. Definitely. Because um, that was, like, 2010, I think. It was, Yeah. Uh, so generally, like with the young cast, I think the women in the cast have had better careers than the men. Like Mila Kunis did. Like, I'm a rare fan of Jupiter Ascending, and of course, like she was great in Black Swan, but she's done a lot of great comedies. Always saw Donna as a blockbuster queen. Um, Kirsten Dunst. I would I would describe her as the most universally beloved actress that no one talks about. And that's not to say she's under the radar or anything, but she's just like one of those actresses who doesn't generate discourse. She picks really, really good projects, doesn't have an obnoxious media presence. I like imagine that her and Jesse Plemons are just hanging out in their normie-ass house doing normie-ass things. Yeah, like, I I love her. I, I want to do like a whole podcast on her. <laughs> um, I-, I just might. She's because she's <laughs> worth it. I love like so many of my favorite movies like are Kirsten Dunst movies I love Bring It On I I think Drop Dead Gorgeous is my all time favorite movie like 
It's the I, it's the movie that I watched last year on my birthday. Actually, wait, it. no, because I was gonna say, oh, I tell people my favorite, like my pretentious pick for favorite movie, and I realize my favorite movie of all time is a Kirsten Dunst movie. My legitimate, serious favorite movie <laughs> of all time is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I always forget that she's in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and Ben Foster, I, I don't want to downplay him because he has been pretty successful and like commercially, but he's still an under the radar successful actor somehow. I totally also didn't realize that he's married to Carla Homolka herself, Laura Prepon. Um, I, I wonder if Mila Kunis introduced them. Um, but uh, like, yeah, I look at this era of teen movies. One thing I keep coming back to is how like these movies were a great launching pads for for unknowns and like. I was I was about to get on a soapbox about how like oh teen movies don't do that these days which again there are no teen movies these days but like teen TV and direct to streaming and I realized that that actually is one of the few things that has persisted from teen movies in our days to teen movies today like you know look for me the biggest things like 10 things I hate about you we established in that episode like uh, Julia Stiles was a total unknown. Heath Ledger was a total unknown. American Pie, like I think Thomas Ian Nichols, like people knew him because of Rookie of the Year, but everyone else, and maybe Chris Klein, I guess, but everyone else was a nobody in that movie. Princess Diaries, Anne Hathaway was a nobody. That's the craziest like, one Beckham. to me. Yeah. yeah. Keira Knightley um, was, like, that was her first movie, I think. It really was. And um, it, that was right before Pirates. Actually, technically, she was in one of the uh, Star Wars prequels, but in an unrecognizable oh. sense. Right, totally <laughs> forgot, and we've mentioned that on on this or on Peak Show. Um, but yeah, like there's there actually is something like you see with like I I often reference because it's it's the last teen thing that I watch, but like Never Have I Ever or Stranger Things. Like these kids are kind of plucked from obscurity, which is good because, uh, and you know, yes, a lot of them are nepo babies, but a lot of them aren't. You know, um, and I I just think it's nice because teens get sick of seeing the same old shit. Um, you know, we want them to like we want them to get into real big things. The the only thing is now, like, I feel like no one gets big in a normal way. Like the fact that Millie Bobby Brown has a cosmetics line now that it, and I'm like, ah, oh. like it, it used to be just that the superstars like the Olsen twins did shit like that. And now, like, everyone has a fucking skincare line. Well, and not- you're 18. Go like fucking drink baby duck and not to be this person but i think that is also something that is particularly uh happening a lot with uh women identifying uh mm-hmm. young actors um because i don't feel like you see that as much with um men mm-hmm. having like a beauty line or being you know having to have a singing career or you know that kind of thing i think you know what the beauty and or skincare line is to, to the 2020s as the side singing career was in the 90s. We don't see that as much. I will also say, because, like, I was expecting this movie to be one where, like, they tried to launch Kirsten Dunst as a singer or something. No, never happened. And, like, a weird thing that I now know from doing just a little bit of acting and a little bit of commercial work in my life is that most actors can sing yeah most people Very, can carry a tune like like only like three yeah. percent of people in the world are actually like fully tone deaf most actors can sing and have gotten vocal training while they were getting trained as actors and so of course most of these actors can can like have decent pipes um that said i love good like um fake bad singing because for people who can carry a tune it's really hard to make them into bad singers i gotta wonder is ben foster actually a bad singer because his bad singing in this movie is so good yeah i i think he is either an actual bad singer or just really not trying Mm -hmm. 
Um. Like, so... <laughs> Uh, one more thing about the context, and we talked about this a lot, but, like, the whole loosely based on Shakespeare trend, I think the reason why, like, I, it doesn't quite work for me with this movie is because it's too overt. Instead of just having, like, there's something very different between this and Ten Things, where Ten Things, like, yes, you have characters who literally have the same name and stuff, but this is literally, like, we're using the actual play as a framing device. Oh, it's a play! And, and... Uh, here's Martin Short to explain the plot of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and we're going to zoom in, zoom in on every character's face, and every character here is playing their character equivalent in A Midsummer Night's Dream. So I actually have a lot to say about this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, I do agree with you that, like, a lot of it is too kind of too on the nose, mm-hmm. um, like, especially the explainers. Um, but... I actually think it's part of why I like it and why it works as an adaptation of Midsummer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just going to keep calling it Midsummer, even though that's confusing. <laughs> um. For me, because my priorities <laughs> lie in one place, and that's horror. Um, so I think the inclusion of the actual production of Midsummer is like a little bit over the top because it confuses it more. Because actually, the characters aren't playing their their characters. Are right. Um, and that most of them are, but uh, Burke and Stryker are actually switched because Burke is playing the Demetrius role, and right. Stryker is playing the Lysander role in in the in the story of the film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, Burke thinks he's the Lysander. He thinks he's the one who gets Hermia in the end, but he's not. He's the one mm-hmm. who goes into the woods and falls in love with someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like the idea and maybe I'm like giving it way too much credit because I love this movie so much but like the Mm. idea that the theater is like standing in for the magic and and um the the fairies and the and the um the 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 wood the woodland is like something that I thought about a lot when I was watching this because I think it really does that and Mm. I think you know it you know it it gives it's taking them out of themselves for the most part and you know expanding their emotions and their experiences into something that they wouldn't otherwise feel the same way that sort of the magic does in a midsummer night's dream mm-hmm. um and so i think that that i think the the show part of it is necessary <laughs> mm-hmm. um i think it does get confused because because it's the same show that they're doing in the um you know they're doing the show that in they're universe, telling yeah. in universe like it um it really should be if we're like sticking with the overall conceit of the sh- they should be doing Romeo and Juliet um mm-hmm. because the play within a play in Midsummer Night's Dream is Pyramus and Thisbe so it's it's a tale of forbidden love and and tragic endings and and such um uh and i think that it I think it just sort of adds to the absurdity and the silliness. Like, there's something really silly about Mm -hmm. this movie. And um, I think it does sort of, it doesn't quite work because it is the same, the same play. But I think the, the actual structure of it being a play that they're involved in is important to uh, sort of making the, the, the point of, of, the plot of a Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you, you know, I, I didn't write this down in my notes, but one of the things I actually really liked when I was watching it back is that aside from Kirsten Dunst, and even she's not, like, amazing, n- none of these kids are amazing. None of these kids are even all that good. Oh, yeah, it feels like, like a real high school show. Like, yeah, you're like, it fact- comes together and it 
creates something that you're like, this is okay. <laughs> I would I would just love to see one movie that portrays high schoolers doing a play or musical where they put a fucking mic pack on someone. Right. Like that was always the bane of my absolute existence in high school theater. Because you were also a theater kid, right? Yeah, I did musicals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was a bit of a theater kid. Um, I was only a lead a couple times because like I'm not a strong actor. I've never been. Um, but like I'm a singer and a dancer. So obviously like I was I loved being in chorus. Um, I was I was Dorothy, actually, which is funny because the one thing about Dorothy is she doesn't really dance. Um, but I'm pretty sure I was Dorothy because my dog was one of the Totos that we used. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, my, my little, my little Tess, RIP. But, um, and I, I was also thing, thing one yeah. in Susicle. That's the only time, cause I'm an acrobat, yeah. but, um, yeah, I'm, I've not been a lead, but I'm just like, will someone put a fucking mic pack on these kids? The like- one, the one show where I was like more than the chorus was, um, we did, uh, my eighth, my I didn't do any of the straight plays in high school because they conflicted with my sports seasons. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do both, which was highly annoying so to you, me. But so you were Troy Bolton. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in eighth grade, I was uh, in the high school play, uh, You Can't Take It With You. And we had, it was a three-act play, and there was like a featured person in each act. So me and mm-hmm. two other girls had to share a mic pack, and we had to like switch it between acts, which was mm-hmm. like... God, the most terrible. Like, I was lucky because I got to wear pants in my role because mm-hmm. my role was actually uh, written as a man, but we did it. We had a lot more girls, so it was it was a, a female IRS agent. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but I had to switch it. I had to give it to the next person for the second act, and, like, the time that we had to do it was so little, and it was, like, me being, like, and doing, like, a big, you know, ace bandage around her leg, like, because there wasn't a whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So no, I totally agree with you that it's like, and during the show and get over it, they're like, you know, side, you know, having little side conversations with each other. It's like, I'm like, everyone can hear you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, uh, so this is a great, great opportunity to talk about Martin Short in this movie, because the one time Martin Short came up on Peak Show, I was like, I don't really like Martin Short. And the fact is, I still... He's just kind of one of those actors that I think is not for everyone because his performances are always extremely over the top. But I still always have this huge affection for him because he seems like one of the sweetest and most genuine personalities in show business. I know I've mentioned I mentioned this on the Arrested Development episode, but have you ever seen uh, the clip? I don't know if it's on an American or a Canadian morning show, but he's on like some sort of morning show or talk show and the host is asking him about like oh you and your wife have such a beautiful marriage like how do you guys still you know keep things fresh after so many years and the host obviously hadn't been informed that his wife had passed away like several years like five years before or something like that but the way he handled the question was like one of the most tear-jerking things he's like you know she's just always on my mind she's the first person i think about when i wake up like it was one of the saddest things to watch i remember like my first boss showed it to me at work when I was like 23. And he's like, he's like, if you ever asked us, cause like I used to interview like kind of like Canadian B-listers in my first job. And he goes, by the way, if you ever asked a celebrity a question, a stupid ass question like that, I would fucking fire you. I'm like, good to know. Thanks. Thanks, good to know. But yeah, uh, no, he, he seems like a, an amazing man, but I think like one of the reasons like he works um, with this movie, because like I said, the movie, does not know whether or not it's ridiculous. He knows, like, to, to use, like, 
the modern terminology he understands the assignment in this movie mm-hmm. um and like uh, along with ed begley ed begley jr susie kurtz and um ben foster they are the ones who understand dunce does play it like sweet and earnestly which is fine because her role isn't one they try to make funny like god forbid a girl ever be funny in these movies um but for the most part like martin short realizes what this movie is like and the movie is and i say this liking this movie the movie is stupid. Yeah, it's it's stupid, it's silly, and that's what I love about it. Like, yeah. it doesn't, it's not trying to say anything moral or, like, there's no, like, valuable lesson. Um, if, if I keep coming back to a theme with this podcast when we talk about teen movies, it's that this was the era of discourse-free teen movies. It was great. <laughs> oh god yeah and not to say like i i do love some teen movies with discourse like i love eighth grade um but and i love ladybird and stuff but i also love a movie that is like hey this brand of yours flush there it goes um like i said i think uh the parents are really underused and i do think you're right a couple more scenes would have been great more even more and it would have been bad um but like we didn't really use the term sex positive at the time, but they're such a good example of, like, they're really good parents. I also wonder if, you know, I couldn't find anything about the production of this movie other than what was on Me Wikipedia. Yeah. Like, I scoured the internet. I wonder if um, there was any editing of the scripts or, or scenes or um, to, to make this movie PG-13. Absolutely. That's what I suspected as well. Um, um, the, uh, the line, uh, although... Burke might want to go home and polish the rocket. It's again, I think the parents have the actual best. (laughs) Yeah. um, I like like Ben Foster in that scene, but Ben Foster in this whole movie, there's, uh, I kept coming back to his energy reminds me of a non-horror version of Devin Sawa in Final Destination. Like he's normal, cute. Like he, he has a kind of awkward face. He always looks a little bit lost. Um, And as much as like, I think one of the weakest points of this movie acting wise is not even Cisco. Cisco's just there. It's Shane West, which is funny because I don't think he's a bad actor, but he's yeah. not good in this movie. I think I think this movie doesn't work without Ben Foster. Like I think mm-hmm. what he brings to it really like it, it bridges the gap between what the adults are doing and what the rest of the teens are doing yeah. in a really lovely way. And also like really solidifies that this, this is from his point of view. This is from this yep. character's point of view and he's mm-hmm. a little bit crazy and that's okay. <laughs> Maybe that's also something about why this movie doesn't work because a lot of the teen movies of the time, I mean, 10 things splits it pretty evenly between the perspectives of like uh, Patrick and Cameron and then Kat and Bianca um, this is really like the boys story but this was still a market that is toward the teen girls and so that's that's a bit of a confusing place for this movie to be in yeah I think that's kind of why it doesn't um, sort of garner the same uh, like memory as 10 things which I think is is much more aimed at a female audience yeah. and uh, or like American Pie which Though I love American Pie and I could talk yeah. about that too. Um, I was actually like, I should watch that. I've watched that in a while. <laughs> I just rewatched the first three. Yeah. They hold up okay. I will say this is a weird thing, but the first two have some of the worst ADR I've ever seen in movies. I, Holy shit. I, Did everyone re-record every line? There's a lot of bad ADR in movies from this period. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I think that's just like a budget thing. But yeah, but it also doesn't... Mic up! <laughs> 
I also it also doesn't um you know garner the the memory that American Pie does, which was a movie that I will say is probably aimed at at boys and and yeah. guys. Um, and I yeah. think it just like you know this movie doesn't really know who its target audience is, mm-hmm. really, which no. is kind of why I love it. Like I said, because I felt like they made it for me. You know, I felt yeah. like they made it for this weird girl. <laughs> um, weird closeted bisexuals love this movie. Weird, weird. closeted bisexuals love this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and it's funny because I will say this movie has one thing in common with American Pie, which I agree. Like American Pie is the boy's perspective, but it's also marketed toward boys. But I've always said to me, the best thing about American Pie is also like the worst part of it, because the best thing about American Pie is the movie we don't get to see, because all the female characters, Heather, Vicky, especially uh, I, her name is escaping me, but Natasha Leone's character. Yeah. Um, all the female characters are so much more interesting than the male characters. And I like to imagine that they have this movie happening in the background that we're just not seeing. We know nothing about them. And that's a little bit what happens with this movie, because like, to me, the biggest thing that doesn't work besides Shane West, uh, but I will say one note about Shane West to contrast with Ben Foster is he was supposed to be the new extremely strikingly hot guy. And he is. He's he's a cut above everyone else here. But in a year or two's time, every guy in every high school movie would just look like Shane West. Yeah. And I think that's like that's another thing, like what I was talking about before, how like they, they just kind of seem like they are. There aren't these sort of factions and there's not like a nerd and and, you mm-hmm. know, the jock and that sort of thing. And Ben Foster is like, you know, he's just cute but you know not like like most men he is much more handsome in his 40s than he 100 percent. yeah <laughs> um but you know and he's he's sarcastic in the right places and he's earnest but he's still earnest when it matters mm-hmm. and then he's relatable but not so much that it devolves into being forgettable you know he's mm-hmm. doing a lot and i think i really liked the era of the teen male lead just looking kind of normal <laughs> yeah baggy ass pants but uh, um yes because i think the one thing about this movie that really doesn't work is the supporting guys and like burke's friends are obnoxious and i have to say like i'm really glad that like and and i actually think orange county is a good movie but like i'm glad i don't have to read about not chet hanks and see not chet hanks and because like i think one of the worst things about him is in this movie especially much worse than orange county he's not charming he has no charm, and I think that is extremely striking. And now his character's not necessarily supposed to be charming, but um, because he looks so much like Tom, he looks so much like Tom. And Tom Hanks is like is the defined beacon by... of charm. <laughs> yeah, but like Felix is like he has one trait, and it's that he's overly protective of his sister. And like it's the worst part of it for me is like with Felix. They they didn't get the show don't tell note. We don't see any examples really of him being affectionate or protective of Kelly. We just have people say he oh he treats her like a little kid. Oh Felix would kill me. Like he's just really unsupportive and obnoxious. And then Dennis like it's funny because I was saying I, I was initially writing this movie was largely unscathed by not another teen movie, which I think actually might have come out first or come out in tandem. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was another one I saw in theaters with my brother. Um, but um, but then I realized that Felix is, or Dennis is just the token black friend character that is featured in Not Another Teen Movie because he really, like, it is, and and also, I, I forgot to write this down, but we talked in Not Another Teen Movie, or not, in 10 Things I Hate About You, about, like, the fact that the one black female character is always just the friend. 
And, you know, like, how much Gabrielle Union got fucking sided with those roles. But, like, Zoe Saldana as well. Like, her character has no purpose other than, like, to be Allison's buddy. And then, oh, turns out she's kind of two-faced in the end. So, like, we are two black... You're only two black characters in this movie. Unless you count Coolio, uh, who is part of the best joke. Um, But, like, they just serve to be the ultimate in, like, 2000 teen movie stereotypes. And I think that is... And and fortunately, it's not the most predominant thing about this movie, but I think that's a bit of a stain for this movie. Yeah, I think that was, you know, when I was thinking about what doesn't work for this movie, that's definitely like a, a big one. And I think, you know, you get this sort of view of what uh, Cisco could have been doing the whole movie in the sort of last like fifth of it. When he's mm-hmm. like, you, he gets to do his, like, he's such a charismatic musical performer, right? Like, yeah. he does his whole dancey thing, and he's up there performing, and you're like, this is great. Yeah. Um, but previous to that, he's been given nothing to work with, really. And, you know, and is very much just there. Um, I think, you know, that uh, just to go back a little bit to uh, Burke's friends, uh, Colin Hanks and, and Cisco, I think, mm-hmm. you know, for the first part of the movie, they're, like, obnoxious in a way that feels really real real <laughs> to teen boys well, teen boys are obnoxious yeah and then um when you you're right that when they bring in this sort of uh idea that he's that this the one thing that we know about him and that drives his plot forward is that he's protective of his sister it just mm-hmm. falls apart because it doesn't matter like mm-hmm. him being protective of his sister isn't doesn't do anything for the plot of the movie right because yeah. like there's a little moment like when you know uh, Burke's like, you know, oh, I can't do this because you're Felix's sister. But like, you don't need... And then it resolves itself. It resolves itself like, and you don't need that. Like, it, it, that's not part of his conflict. Is Like, he's not conflicted about her being Felix's sister. That's not what the conflict mm-hmm. is. And I yeah. think that's really what they... It's almost like they tried to give that relationship more than it needed. Because I think yeah. one of the strengths of the movie is, other than that relationship, is that it doesn't over-explain who everyone is to each other. Uh-huh. You know, you don't have that scene where she's like, I think a scene that works really well in 10 Things I Hate About You and like uh, Mean Girls or whatever, where you have like the David Crumholds, Janice Ian or Lizzie Kaplan explaining who everyone is at high school, which like yep. I think that works in some movies and it, it really works for the conceit of what uh, Mean Girls is doing. And then it, 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 it plays as kind of a joke in, in 10 Things I Hate About You, which I mm-hmm. like a lot. Um but in this, like, we don't get that. And I kind of like that because it just sort of is like, this is, these are their characters. These are their friends. This is how they talk to each other. Like, I really feel like they talk to each other like teenagers would or like I wish teenagers would. I don't know. Like, it, there's not a lot of substance and that's okay. And and that also, you know, you talk about not diving too much into the characters. That's another thing that is great about this movie is the runtime. 87 minutes. That is exactly how long a teen movie should be. Movies that are longer than 90 minutes have to earn my respect. Movies yes. that are under 90 minutes, they get a pass on a lot of things. <laughs> Dude, I got a midsummer tattoo, so I can't really be... And, and that tattoo took as long as the movie itself. But um, no, um, like this movie, uh, what I always say, this movie is all meat. It's not good quality meat, but it is all meat. Like even like they even try to like do a little beta couple with Dennis and Basin. Also, we talk about... Burke Landers being a weird fucking made up name. Basin? I've they, never heard of someone named Basin. They all have weird names. Like Felix is a weird <laughs> name for this era. Like 
you know. Uh, I'm I'm French Canadian, so I actually know a lot of guys named Felix, but they're all French Canadian. Yeah. Um, um, you know, actually, I totally forgot. There is one thing where I think Cisco might be a little wasted in this movie because I think he might be funnier than this movie lets on because his delivery, like when he gets put into the play and he has to deliver one line and he's just like, go with the husband, husband, wake them with their horns. Yeah. Like, I think that is actually such a funny, bad reading. Like, yeah, no, the key, I actually do think he is underused in this movie. And and mm-hmm. I, I think that it would be a better movie with, you know, some tweaking of a lot of things, uh, especially uh, those two characters and, and Mila Kunis' character and Zoe Zelana's character. Um, because really, mm-hmm. you're not doing a lot with the actors who in their own right, are, are good and, like, have all gone on to do other things. We and, know Mila Kunis is hilarious. Yeah, like, we we know that they're funny and we know that, we know that uh, Kirsten Dunst is funny at this point, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you're, but you're also not doing a lot with the source material in that you're only really focusing on one plot of a, of a play that has three, two and a half mm-hmm. to three major plots. Um, yeah. Like, they could have done some really fun stuff with, like, the bottom and Titania plot. I don't really know how they would have done it, but, like, there's there was more there to be developed around, like, the whole uh, the theater people, I think, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, because, like, the, the supporting characters, like, I love Little Steve little so Steve. much. Peter Wong. <laughs> and Little Steve is one of those guys who just, like, again, he has no backstory. I don't know a damn thing about him. I don't know why he's called Little Steve. I don't know why he has this, like, relationship with Desmond Forrest Oates. But I love him. Um, so uh, a really important question to ask with all these episodes is what is the modern equivalent? And, like, modern I define as anything really in the last 10 years, the streaming era. Now, of course, like... I've ranted now for like three episodes on this uh, podcast about how there are no teen movies uh, without discourse anymore. I also, as we discovered in last week's episode, which has not aired yet, um, there are no sports movies anymore. There are no sports movies anymore. Um, But uh, so uh, on one hand, like, I think it's because like, I do think teens do deserve better than fluff. Um, But I also like fluff. I'm 34 and I like fluff. I think we all deserve fluff. (laughs) Like, on one hand, teens deserve more than fluff, and like I don't believe in insulting kids by constantly targeting just nonsense, nothing movies at them. But also, when I think about it, teens these days they live in an even heavier world than we did, and we lived in a heavier world than our parents did. Uh, and so, like, I mean, we weren't getting drafted to Nam, but we watched the towers go down. Um, and uh, so, I think for me. Um, I just think that there needs to be a balance of serious and fluff because uh, so I sought out true teen fluff to find this. And like I did come across a movie from 2018 called The Kissing Booth, which I did watch a little bit of on my gray market IPTV. It's pretty much got the same vibe as energy, right? Right down to like, oh, no, I'm falling for my brother's best friend. But I think the movie actually works better because it's actually from the perspective of a girl. Um, what it does lack, however, again, is anything involving parents who are funnier than the main cast. Teen movies, please remember that you need to cast funny parents. Um, I have to agree to disagree with you about The Kissing Booth because I have watched that entire movie as someone who loves fluff, and I hated it so much that I've blocked most of it out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will buy that it has a lot of similar story beats, Mm -hmm. but I think that this movie is better written, better acted, and... Yes, better directed in a lot of ways than than the kissing booth. Um, I think I think 
I, I think The Kissing Booth is a bad movie. And I think the, uh, I think the, pr- one of the, the reasons I didn't like it about outside of like the bad acting and the, the uh, bad writing um, was that like, I'm not, I'm never rooting for the girl to get with the hot guy. <laughs> like no. when she has a cute best friend, <laughs> like I'm oh, never rooting in for that. movies is way too beautiful in, in these uh, yeah. movies as well. Like, I just want to say the whole time I'm like, wait, no, I'm supposed to be rooting for her to get with the hot older brother and not her cute best friend that she has like great banter with. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like how am I, how am I, that's not what I'm rooting for ever in a teen movie. Yeah. Um, so I really hated that movie. Apparently, I did not watch any of the sequels. So Sarah Jason and I watched that movie together, like, because sometimes we uh, we get high and watch bad movies. <laughs> um, and sometimes they turn out to be good bad movies um, or just yep. good movies. Like the other week we watched Roadhouse, which is a great movie. <laughs> I think that is a fantastic, fantastic choice. Um, uh and they, I know that they watched at least one of the sequels and I refused to because of how much I hated the first one. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're right that there aren't enough, there's not enough fluff. But like, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, this is smarter fluff than what that is. Well, and I also think that fluff has been downgraded a little bit too because now what you won't see as much is the young actors who are really like... Um, the young actors who are really ambitious and wanting to go places, they won't do the fluff yeah. because it's like, oh, no, this would be a career killer. Um, so uh, another thing that I think, and this is this movie is now almost 10 years old, but I think it it's a better movie. Um, it doesn't quite hit on the same plot points the way The Kissing Booth does, but um, is The Duff. And I would say what I think, where I think the appeal of The Duff comes is like this movie, and we haven't even really talked about how Get Over It is quite biting and like... Not so much that it becomes unpleasant, but it has some good meanness in it. And I think the Duff kind of hits on that energy quite a bit. And it, again, I think it's interesting because like Mae Whitman and like they even have to o- overly explain like, no, you're not actually ugly or fat. You're just not as skinny and pretty as everyone else. And like fucking it's it's nice that Mae Whitman just looks like a just looks like a girl. She just she she'd probably be the prettiest girl in our friend group. But um <laughs> You know, uh, so yeah, I, I'd say like the Duff is probably like another one I keep coming back to. Yeah, I think it's um, it there isn't like there are two to me like kind of two types of teen movies that get made nowadays. And granted, like mm-hmm. I'm not a teen, so they're not being marketed to me necessarily. Which are the sort of like more overly serious, like very very romantic kind of like, you know, based on Wattpad fan fiction yeah. <laughs> um, stuff, which is what I which is what I would put the kissing booth in. It's like mm-hmm. almost it's like it's more of the comedy of that. It's not quite, you know, the sort of like overly like a Nicholas Sparks style uh, yearning, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that some of that some of the stuff coming out now is. Uh, and then there's like the other like, oh, this has to be like a quirky fun series of movies um like all the boys i've loved before yeah which like yeah i love those movies i think they're really fun um -hmm. i think they are as close to like what the teen movies i grew up with are but they're not quite the same um Mm -hmm. and they're almost too polished (laughs) in a way very much yeah um so there's like sort of that those two things happening and i think um you know, I think there's not this, 
there's not this sort of biting place that a lot of a lot of movies that I think like 10 things I hate about you went there I think this movie mm-hmm. went there I think um uh, what was the other movie I was thinking of well bring it on certainly is yeah biting as hell. yeah, yeah. And, and it and, you know it it acknowledges that like teenagers like do kind of suck <laughs> in mm. a lot of ways um and, and not to get off on this again but like you know I, was, I said it with 10 things I'll say it now I think like the the double-edged sword about Gen Z is I do think Gen Z, um, I think they're better people than we are. I think Gen Z, like they have been raised to be more empathetic than millennials were. Um, And so they, they will more readily, like they're used to calling out like problematic media and stuff. But at the same time, that's why a movie like Sierra Burgess is a loser. Um, How successful it was, like, was basically dictated by the fact that teenagers decided Sierra is not likable. Oh, Sierra is actually a bad person. Therefore, this is a bad movie. And realizing that, like, if 10 things were put out today, it would be, well, Patrick didn't deserve forgiveness. Or, well, Bianca really fucked her sister up. Like, um, so. I mean, I think even people would even, I think people would have issues with almost every character in that movie. Like, yeah. Because they all are, like, flawed and interesting and, like, mm-hmm. kind of suck. And I think that's um, that's why I love that movie. And I think... I think it's also just, like, we re- we're realizing we loved movies before Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> movies were fun before Twitter. <laughs> God, yes. Um, anyway, so did you manage to find a movie that you found to be the modern equivalent of Get Over It? I was really looking and I really, mm-hmm. like... I really tried, yeah. but I just, there, there's, I was like going on Netflix and being like teen comedy, <laughs> um, but I think there's not quite anything that doesn't either, it either is like too, too much of that, like bad writing, not enough bite, mm. you know, uh, kissing booth kind of thing, or um like too it becomes too serious and takes itself too seriously and you know it's funny and it's got that bite but then it's like you know someone has a drug problem or you know something like that (laughs) you know why it would be hard to find the modern equivalent is because it's really hard to find like let's face it we we both love this movie but this is the world's okayest teen movie yeah and like just like search like okayest teen movie of the 2010s this is this is the arendelle of teen movies there, sports goalie. reference. <laughs> um, okay, so bam, 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 we're back to the lightning round, oh, uh, bringing back a beloved tradition uh, from Peak Show. So we have the get over at lightning round. So if you were making an early 2000s time capsule, who do you put in that time capsule, vitamin C or Cisco? Okay, so uh, if I'm like putting someone in the time capsule, I like I think vitamin C is like more more of a in this movie more of a signifier of like when it is when Mm. it is happening just because her you know blip in in pop culture it was quickly forgotten (laughs) um but like you see her if you know who she is (laughs) and are like oh her um do you know she's an executive for nickelodeon now good for her (laughs) yeah (laughs) we were we were uh like that came up like totally apart from this um in a conversation i was having so yeah or she or she worked for them at one point she might actually be at netflix now which would be interesting she's getting paid good for her Uh, colleen you get your money right um um but i think i think cisco weirdly has (laughs) because the thong song is so iconic i think he has a lot more 
staying power in people's memory. Mm-hmm. Not that graduation is not iconic, but like I know younger people who I work with who don't know that song. Um, and like have no idea who vitamin C is. Um, so I think that's, that's my choice there. This isn't very lightning. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. I I will also say Cisco, but one of the reasons is because like, I get really like Gen Z is very good at irony and Gen Z humor has like always constantly like eight layers of irony. And I respect that. However, they seem to think that the millennial generation didn't understand irony. We perfected and it. So <laughs> we really did. And so I I would do this if this probably wouldn't get me fired as a dance teacher reported. I would love to play the thong song for my kids and say like, no, we were self-aware and ridiculous back then. Because yeah. I guarantee you Cisco knew how ridiculous you know, he like, was. We all, it wasn't that we like genuinely thought that song was great i mean it's a bop don't get me wrong but like we all knew that it was supposed to be funny it's like who she let the dog dunks down? like a truck 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 yeah like okay so i think i think the problem is that there's not enough novelty music now <laughs> <laughs> i don't know do you know the song strutting by thumpasaurus wait yes i have heard this <laughs> that song is much like the thong song too horny for its own good well i think also that like there isn't the, the way that music is dispersed now it's just yeah. like so disparate and it's we're not all listening to the same things no uh okay so which speaking of music which song in the play do you like the most um it's the opening song i can sing the whole thing and i do it's really okay at, at many times <laughs> the end shot of like desmond forest oats and like him being so happy because everyone loves it and like you know what aside from the fact that a pocket full of dreams sucks it is a good music. Composing an original musical is hard. Yeah, like the songs he, are fine. Like they're fine. It's great. Yeah. He does a great job. That said, I really like the disco-y. It's fun to be a fairy. Like <laughs> I I love like for years I had that what fools these mortals be. Like it's a good little hook. Yeah. Uh Cisco's dancing is great. So yeah, I, I love that one. So little Steve or Peter Wong? <sighs> I think Peter Wong. Uh-huh. There was, I was, I watched this movie twice today while I was working, (laughs) just because I wanted to be, like, so fresh, Um, and it's 90 minutes, um, and I was, like, working at the same time, so whatever, because I'm working from home today. Um, You don't have to justify shit. Yeah. (laughs) And there's this moment um, at the end when Peter Wong is on the side of the stage, like, it's during the the play, and he's, you know, Mm -hmm. talking to some member of the chorus, and he's in his wheelchair with his two broken legs, and he just looks up and says, break a leg. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never laughed at that moment before, but I laughed really hard today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great. So, yeah, Peter Wong and the whole, like, his whole audition. And when he yeah. gets wheeled off and he's like, Desmond Forrest Oates is my special my buddy. special buddy. Uh, I do still love little Steve um, because I just, like, I want, he's one of those people, like, I always say the most interesting movie is the one not happening. I want to know what made little Steve the way he is. He seems like he really loves his life. He seems, like, really confident. He is living in that fairy role. And, uh, yeah, I just think he's a quirky little weirdo. And, again, these random, like, Canadian character actors you pull off the street, I think, like, they can do some great things. Yeah, because this entire movie was shot in Ontario, so... Yeah, it was shot in, uh, like, uh, neighborhood of Mississauga, um, which also, weirdly enough, even though he is American, Cisco's first album was recorded at Metalworks in Mississauga. Weird. Weird. So what, if any, is a line that you quote from this movie? 
Oh my god. So I don't quote that many lines from this movie just because like yeah. there's not th- there's not a ton that uh like are applicable to situations. Mm-hmm. Um but the ones that like live in my mind are uh, keep icing your front bum. <laughs> this was the first movie that like again, I was like 11 years old realizing I could call a vagina a front bum and it would fucking kill. Yeah. Um and then there's a there's just a reading that Melissa Sage Miller who plays Allison does in the beginning that always like just really sticks with me which is uh trends fade, breads mold, people die (laughs) when she's like breaking up with him yeah and I don't know why that's always stuck with me and then there's just there's so many like fun moments but there's not a ton of like great like repeatable you know things you could quote at people but a lot of the things that um Martin Short says are kind of great and I yeah I love them um uh, so for me Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. That's all I had. Well, for me, one of them is a Martin Short line, and it is, um... oh, shit, I lost it. Oh, my God. This has been happening so much lately. Um, Well, I'll say what my first one is, because this is one I actually do often use in my everyday life, which is the opening line that I use. um, I call call a lot of things a pocket full of ass. Um, (laughs) uh, Like, how is, like, I'll I'll come home from the office, like, oh, how was your day? It was a pocket full of ass. Thank you. Like, to the point where I think at one point I'd forgotten where I got this from. But the Martin Short line that I use quite a bit is um, when he says to the one actor, you tell me if you'd had a stroke, right? <laughs> um, and like, I will say this, like, stroke is a very serious thing in my family. Like, I think on both sides of my family, when I say everyone has had a stroke except my parents, like all their fucking siblings have had strokes. My grandparents have had strokes. My my real grandpa died at 35 of an aortic aneurysm, Jeez. which is basically like kind of a stroke, but not really. Um Oh, yeah, I I have a date set for August of 2024. Like, at that point, um, August 22nd of 2024, I will be older than my maternal grandfather ever got to be. Wow. And I'm still pretty young. Yeah. Um, also, I find out he has the same birthday as my husband, mm. my real grandpa. Um, not the same year, obvs. But, <laughs> um, uh, no, like, but the way, like, I, so I'm like, I feel like I'm allowed to joke about this because stroke has affected my family. But like, it is like, again, and and maybe that, again, maybe it's for good reasons because Gen Z is more sensitive than we are. But like, you probably wouldn't see a joke like that because like, you can't just make fun of people who have had strokes. Like, you actually can't. Yeah. Like, that's, that's a mean thing. You definitely can. Yeah. But like, you know, it is a funny fucking line. Like, you'd tell me if you'd had a stroke, right? Yeah. Like, that's that's a joke that I would make with my closest of friends. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So who's a celebrity or two you'd like to see go on Ed Begley Jr. and Susie Kurtz's show? Like, honestly, I could not come up with someone for this. Mm-hmm. I, like... Because I'm like, who's, like, really open sexually? <laughs> oh, see, I went for the opposite. I went for who has one... Who have the best straight faces. Ah, and I would say, although it would have to be in his Raymond Holt character, but I'd love to see Andre Brower. That would be pretty fun. And then also, uh, why not a celebrity couple? I'd love to see Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally. That would be really fun, actually. Actually, if they remake this movie, they should just play the parents. Yes! <laughs> Megan Mullally actually is kind of the spiritual successor to Susie Kurtz. Oh, 100%. I don't think yeah. they're that far apart in age, but I think Megan Mullally is younger. <laughs> mm. Yeah. But yeah, no, they should just play the parents in the remake that we're making. <laughs> yes. Um, oh. 
No, that would be great. I think, yeah, I, I'm like trying to think of like, I just don't think about celebrities that often. <laughs> uh, that, to be honest, I, that are, I think about like people who star in the TV I watch and that's it. Yeah. That aren't like, you know, athletes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so I I couldn't really come up with anyone that I wanted. Like there's there's so many people I would love to see on this that like were that are like no longer with us, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Like I just always think about Madeline Kahn when I think about uh, movies like this, and and I think she's maybe the spiritual uh, mother of Susie Kurtz in this, um, and that's someone who's really really funny. You know, we I talked a lot about this in in the previous episode I was on. Um, um, Maybe that's somebody you bring on the show is Mel Brooks. Ooh, that'd be mm. fun. He would, he'd have he a would good, just give it back to them. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, he'd have a good time. Yeah. All right, so if you could flip this perspective of the movie to make it from one of the girls' perspectives, which girl would you rather see the perspective of, Kelly or Allison? I mean, I think it has to be Kelly. I think mm-hmm. in this movie, Allison has a little more, like, meat to her personality, not Mm-hmm. Not a ton. But I think if you flip the perspective, you get more from, from Kelly. I think, you know, you need to make her a little more dynamic. I think that's one of the big problems with this movie. Because, like, it, it, uh, you know, we know at this point, and they know at this point that like, Kirsten Dunst is funny, you know? But mm-hmm. Kelly in this movie is, like, a little bit too perfect. Like, a little bit too, like, you know, she's not, like, glamorous. But, like, she's beautiful. She's talented. She's smart. Um, and Kirsten Dunst's comedy really excels when she's playing just a little bit stupid. <laughs> just, like, mm-hmm. just a little bit dumb. Or, like, naive dumb. Like, yeah. Like, the way, like, her character in Drop Dead Gorgeous, for example, is not stupid. But she is a little airheaded. Yeah. Like, in a very sweet way. Um, That's what I she's mean, like, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I will say, like, I have a bit of a justice for Allison in this movie. And again, a thing I like about this movie that is a little bit different from teen movies of the day is that they really don't make Allison self-centered or unsympathetic. She really does just break up with Ben because it's over and they there's nothing left. And even, like, she doesn't, like, you feel, you actually end up feeling really sorry for her that Stryker fucks her over in the way that, that they do. And so, like, I think I would, I would really love to see an Allison perspective because I'd love to see what makes her have her change of heart. What does she go through? How is she feeling in all this? Because, like, I feel like one of them gets a raw deal in the sense that the movie underdevelops them, which is Kelly. She gets a bit of a raw deal from the script. Allison gets a raw deal in universe. And yeah. uh, so neither of them have it great. Yeah, and I think I think the the thing is that like uh in to me at least in Midsummer Night's Dream, like Helena, who is the Kelly analogous character, is more mm-hmm. interesting because she's the mm-hmm. one who is, you know, has this unrequited love and who, you know, going into the forest really changes her. You know, and I think, you know, it's kind of sold in Shakespeare that Hermia, like, does also love Demetrius, but, like, you know, she's in love with Lysander, and she ends up with Lysander, and that's how how it is, and, you know, there's this whole thing with her parents and who they want her to marry and, and mm. stuff, and that's her conflict, but you don't really have that part in in the story that they're telling here, so, like, the Helena character been, ends up being the much more interesting character, um, which is why I think it's the character you have to tell the story from if you're choosing one of the women. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing is like they change the story in that yeah. Lysander is kind of like shitty. Whereas like yes. in in 
Midsummer Night's Dream, like he's just another dude. Like he's yeah. fine. You're rooting for them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if you could recast the movie for today, who is your awkward male lead? So this is really hard, and I, this was the one I thought the most about. I know this is, like, mm-hmm. not really, like, lightning round, but um, I think you you kind of still have to stick with someone kind of unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people I came up with are um, Milo Mannheim, who has mm-hmm. done, like, a lot of Disney stuff and was recently in this Paramount Plus show that Sarah and I really like. It's called School Spirits where he mm-hmm. plays a ghost, <laughs> but um, but he's, like, a jock, but there's, like, also he does this kind of like dumb dumb jock but with this underlying earnestness and complexness that i think he could bring to this character mm-hmm. um so that was my one of my choices and the other one was the kid who played gilbert blythe on Anne with an e um uh-huh. uh whose name is lucas jade zuman mm-hmm. um and he's like slightly more slight in build uh both these both these actors as well as ben foster are jewish so maybe that's something <laughs> um and so, but I, I think you have to cast someone relatively unknown, like who wouldn't be immediately recognizable. Um, mm. And uh, I think Milo Manham was my first thought because like I've seen him do like weird shit <laughs> mm-hmm. as well as like be really earnest and, and like uh, sweet in like Disney shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. um. I, okay, so I have two picks. One, uh- one I think is a little too old. One I think is a little too cute. So um, I would say Asa Butterfield um, definitely captures the like, there's some, and, and he is 26, but like, I mean, in the 90s, we were casting fucking 30 year olds. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and he has something about his face that he does permanently look like a baby. But, um, uh, and he is, has such a sweetness about him and like, He's not super dashingly handsome, but you just want to squeeze him a little bit. Now, another actor, because I think, like, you know, why does Ben have to be white? Um, I, or Ben Burke. God damn it. <laughs> oh, right, because Burke Landers is the whitest name I've ever heard. Um, but, uh, I, but I would say Niles Fitch. Um, he was in one of my favorite movies, actually a teen movie that I really love, but is super fucking serious from 2021, The Fallout. Um, it's actually Jenna Ortega stars in it, um, but it was pre-Wednesday so uh, and pre-Scream. And um, one of the kids from Dance Moms is in it, and she's actually really amazing in it, but Niles Fitch is a supporting role in that. He also plays um, a young version. Of the, he plays like the teenage Randall in This Is Us. Um, and actually a few times because he is supposed to be a dorkier character when he's, cause you know, Sterling K Brown, famously a giant fucking dork. Um, but, um, like, you know, when he is a little more nerded up as Randall and you, it does downplay how handsome he is. Cause Niles Fitch is a very, very handsome young man. But, um, yeah, I think like he does have the thing where you buy that he could be like a shy kid who's just trying out for the play and whatever. Um, so who's the cute girl next door that he falls for? So um, I have a few choices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, my first thought was uh, the girl who plays Maya in Mighty Ducks Game-, Game Changers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who I think is just like sweet and cute and like could also bring like a little bit of edge to the role um mm-hmm. <laughs> um i think uh, another great choice would be uh matrey 
her name I can't pronounce her last name who yeah, is the star of, of Never Have Never I Ever, Ever. Um, she's fantastic and then in like possibly a fun connection my third choice was Martina Ortiz Louise which I think you know what I think and she's got pipes I know I think she maybe have too much pipes for this role but <laughs> um but I think you know she I watched Winona Earp which she had a, a minor role on the last season mm-hmm. and and I thought she did great and she's been doing movies and and TV bit parts and stuff, and I think she could be really, really fun in a remake of this. <laughs> so, like, the ultimate anime betrayal for me wasn't Kyle Dubas getting fired. It was Martina Ortiz leaving as her anthem singer. But I am glad to know that, like, she, that, that girl is going to have an absolute career, but she was really the only top-notch an- anthem singer in the league. Like, literally, so. it's, it's so sad. <laughs> and just everything she does, and I think you're right, she does have absolute girl-next-door kind of, like, She's so stunningly beautiful, and yet she looks like she could be your best friend. Yeah. So um, I, the one person I kept coming back to was Sophia Lillis, which is weird because even though she's only 20, she still strikes me as, like, she's been around forever. Mm-hmm. And that's because It came out in 2017. So she was 15 in It. And yet, like, so it just feels like she's been around kind of forever. Um, she's fantastic, and I am not okay with this. And again, like, she's beautiful, but she's not, like, one of those people who is, like, she is too beautiful to reasonably be a high school student. Yeah. Uh, and I think she's also really funny. And you, the one thing that seem, that she seems to have in common with a lot of her characters is that they are very independent people. And I think that's... I mean, they say that Kelly is a very independent character. It would be nice to have her actually show it. Yeah. So who's a singer that you're trying desperately to wedge into a supporting role? This was so hard because, like, I don't know what, like, I don't know what the uh, the 2023 equivalent of Cisco is. Yeah. I don't listen to popular music. Like, I, music finds me in weird ways. Um, uh-huh. But I'm just like, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, because like my first thought, even though he's way too old, it was like Jason Derulo. I was like, who can dance? <laughs> no, he'd fall down the stairs. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I like, I like, this is really hard for me. And I was like, because everyone you would try to like wedge into that role has already probably been an actor on like some Disney plus show. Like I was like, oh, like Olivia Rodrigo. But like she was, she was acting before she was like making music. So like, I don't yeah. know. I... That was, this was kind of a rabbit hole I went down realizing that, like, there aren't, and and also, like, there aren't a lot of young male hip-hop stars now. Like, you see a lot of up-and-coming country singers and stuff. Um, So I was like, oh, shit, like, yeah, who is... I feel like there must be, we just don't know about them. So (laughs) what I ended up settling on, though, was it's like, okay, it's 2023, uh, just as why does Burke have to be white? Why do all his friends have to be guys? <laughs> and so a person that has obviously been kind of like, and, and I have a lot of respect for this person, but it's very clear that she's been like aiming for fame from a young age. But Tate McRae uh, is a really good example. So she's a singer, but I knew her originally as a dancer. Uh, she is from Calgary originally, and she is making, she's, a, I would compare her music to like Jojo. Remember Jojo? Yes, Jojo. Love Jojo. Jojo, current star of Moulin Rouge on Broadway. What? Good for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but Tate, Tate was, a, 
I don't even know if she's still doing a lot of dancing, but she was a very, very serious and amazing competitive dancer. And then she oh, was, she was on, on So You Think Can Dance. Yeah, she was on like the one season that they did for kids. Um, but her style of music is I watched very. That she mm-hmm. crazy beautiful legs, um, amazing lines, and she was only like twelve when they did that show. Um, but now, like her style of music is very much that cool R and B thing, and I do know for a fact that a lot of the kids are loving listening to her. And you could buy because she has that kind of like street smart style like her whole thing is the whole like i'm like not even not even in a hypersexualized way i think her whole persona is just like i know what's up you know and so it's like okay she can be the cool best friend yeah um okay so here's the fun one though who's the drama teacher okay so my uh two choices are no, I have three choices, but one of them could be combined, I think, to be really fun. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Kate Berlant or Sam Richardson. Mm-hmm. But I also think you could have them together as like the two, you know, because he has like his assistant. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, I think Sam Richardson would be really funny because like I, I love him in shit. Like I think, you sh- I think you should leave. And he's got yes. this kind of <laughs> over the top personality like he plays that really well as evidenced by his role in Ted Lasso. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he would he would have a really good time. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and I think Kate Berlant also like plays, plays that really, really well. And I think they could yeah. play off each other really well, which would be funny. I, I really think Sam Richardson does a very accurate Nigerian accent. I gotta say. <laughs> um, but, um, and he is, I like, again, you talk about pe- like people and performers that aren't overused. I like that he only showed up on Ted Lasso like once a season. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed know? that a lot. Um, my other mm-hmm. pitch for the drama teacher is to mm-hmm. let Jake Gyllenhaal go crazy. Oh, I don't <laughs> know when the last time was I saw him go crazy. Um, I was trying to get ideas. So I was like going through my old Tumblr posts oh. <laughs> um, and I found a gift set of him in... Uh, John Mulaney's Sack Lunch Bunch as Mr. Music, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you watched that. <laughs> I have heard so much about it. I've heard so many people tell me about it, and yet I don't even think I've seen a clip or a gif from it. Um, it's really fun. <laughs> um, and uh, he has a, a very small bit role in it where he just kind of goes insane and is clearly okay. having like so much fun being like musical and over the top and um, kind of insane um, that I think he would have so much fun in this role and it would work so i went with two guys who are mainly tv guys but one i thought uh paul f tompkins um i think paul f tompkins is really good at playing a dick um and uh even though he's not as over the top outwardly as uh, as martin short but i think like you don't necessarily have to do over the top big because like that's martin short's energy we don't need some to be martin short we just need someone to be funny uh, the other, I thought, and this is almost the complete opposite in terms of persona of how Martin Short is in this movie, but Mark Evan Jackson. Oh, um, my God. Yeah. Like, and because he can play someone who takes himself seriously. It would be different, but it would be really fun. <laughs> yeah. Like, just, my name is Dr. Desmond Forrest Oates. Like, very, <laughs> very straight-faced. Yeah. I think, and very clipped. So mm-hmm. I... Yeah, I would love to see Mark Evan Jackson in this. So I have to see to, Mark Evan Jackson in more like as a parent or an adult in more teen stuff. Like I loved you, him in the Babysitters Club. Oh my god, it's like <laughs> it was so sweet his and part earnest. Made me cry. Like I don't know. 
Maybe because, like, I, like, I was saying just on, on our Miracle episode last week, like, I love my dad, but he is, like, the least expressive dad in the world. And so, like, seeing any footage of, like, expressive dads and actually, like, oh, wow, this dad's saying out loud that he loves his child. That's great. That's special. Um, so to conclude our thoughts on Get Over It, we need to determine a couple things. So let's say you're playing this for the first time in 2023, uh, 2023 in your 30s. So what aspects of this do you think, like, have and haven't aged well not only socially but in terms of like the the filmmaking and the storytelling yeah i think um obviously we've already touched on the the black characters and how they aren't they aren't used well and they're not given a lot to do and it's it's not Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel so gross as it does in other movies in a lot of ways but it still isn't great um and uh i think that there's also you know the what you have a lot of this time, there's a lot of like, there's gay jokes, there's jokes that like, you know, you, you know, there's that joke about the guy having a stroke. Like it's not, you, mm-hmm. they wouldn't, they wouldn't hold up now necessarily. No. Um, but I think uh, like from a filmmaking perspective, there, is, we talked a little bit about this on the Ruin My Life episode, that there is this um, sort of veneer on a lot of movies made around this time. They don't look good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like um, this movie, especially, I feel like it, it. It part of what it is gives it like is like a reason I like it and gives it something some substance. In that, like this movie has the palette of this movie has a lot of colors, a lot of like interesting shapes, a very like sixties seventies like pastiche. Um, but the lighting of this movie is so bad that it feels yeah. so washed out. But it gives like that sort of you know that sort of heightened thing they're going for with the sets and the colors and and the direction it kind of grounds it in an interesting way and part of that grounding really is part of what I like about this movie but like Mm. I kind of imagine this movie if it had like good lighting and interesting uh lighting lighting being the main thing um that it might be seen as more of a, a a piece like more of a a you know, more absurdist, more um, trying to do something than it is. Yeah, like I said, this movie can't decide how heightened it is at times, and it can't decide how self-aware it is. I also, yeah, you you totally made me remember that, like, I think it's Kelly and Felix. They live in this fantastic mid-century house that I just want to live in. They they do, and they, like, all three of the houses that we see, their house, uh, the Lander's house, and... Um, Allison's house are all these like beautiful mid-century houses mm-hmm. and I'm just like there's that you know that shot of when he is leaving and it's like this beautiful like house with these angles and uh it and then you know Burke's house has that whole like when they're sitting on the bench the kissing scene it's got that like big mm-hmm. red like thing with the circles in it it's all very like there 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 is a like aesthetic theme in this movie but the lighting just washes it all out and makes you kind of not notice it which really mm-hmm. makes me wonder if it if it had a like a stronger a stronger lighting designer or cinematographer or something like if this movie yeah. would be considered more deeply you know I agree. I think that's one of the things that doesn't age well about this movie. This movie looks like shit, um, which is and it kind of because there's certain things like when you look at like the low rise jeans and the midriff bearing tops of. Um, bring it on and 10 things and you're like oh my god this is such a great 2000 time capsule and when you look at something like this that is not lit well and has a lot of the same elements you think oh this is such a 2001 time capsule <laughs> like it, it which really goes to show how much of a difference 
art direction and set direction makes. Um, here's a random thing that I think has aged very well. The character of Doralyn, who we haven't really mentioned, um, mainly because in this, in this era, if you were to have a character like that who exists to be a joke, odds are it, in any other movie, it was because she was disabled in some way. She had Tourette syndrome or whatever. And this is just a girl who is so frighteningly clumsy that she ruins everything around her. And it's a very childish and cartoonish aspect of the movie. But for some reason, every time I watched that, I was like, this is so sweet, this character. Yeah, it would it would have like it definitely in a lot of other movies at the time she would have been disabled or you know either developmentally or or physically um mm-hmm. uh and i think that is the fact that she's just like she's just clumsy like she's she's we see her you know carrying on conversation she's smart she's interesting like she you know she like she had there is a character there it's you know she doesn't yeah. exist for anything else but that but no i think that is like that is one thing where it's like you're like this is silly but like it's kind of fun mm-hmm. it <laughs> and is and she gets her happy ending she really does and we also see that she is i think a cello player like she she has a life yeah she's, you know? she's in the orchestra <laughs> yeah so, Kelsey, thank you for being with us here on this sixth episode of Tales from the Rec Room. So if you want to, once again, plug where we can find you, read or listen to your thoughts, now is the time. Um, yeah, you can find me at Kelsey Rebecca on Instagram and Twitter, um, mostly talking about sports. Um, and you can find my podcast, uh, Ruin My Life, on wherever you find podcasts. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend the episode that they did on this movie, as well as the episode on The Shining. Uh, I think it's just a fantastic exploration of everything that makes that movie so great. As for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde. You can find me on Twitter, maybe at prune underscore underscore Tracy. Mm-hmm. Kelsey, aren't you proud of me of how little I've tweeted over the last couple weeks? Honestly, um, like I've not tweeted that much over the last couple weeks because yeah. Twitter doesn't really let me. <laughs> I'm um like... Just, I said this last week, but I'm not getting rid of Twitter because I need it to promote the show, but like the app's not on my phone anymore. I pop on there and like, I, yeah, but I always, that said- I moved the app on, into like three folders on my phone during the yeah. during playoffs and was like, and it's just stayed there. Yeah. So you can find me there, nevertheless, at prune underscore underscore Tracy. I'm also on Blue Sky now, prune Tracy uh, dot blue sky. Dot Look at oh, you. Yeah. Liz and I are on Blue Sky. We are tearing it up. How you hook um, a girl up with an invite, man. <laughs> I don't I don't have an invite code yet. Um, uh, it'll go to you before it goes to my husband. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> He chose Mastodon. He lives with Mastodon. Um, so, uh, but you can also follow this podcast on Twitter at Rec Room Tales. We might b- get Blue Sky at some point. I don't know what's going on. I We're not on threads. We're not on threads. I'm n- no. Um, so new episodes come out on Thursdays all summer. You can join us back in the Rec Room next week with our good friend Maggie Taylor. You might remember her back from our office episode of Peak Show. We're going back to Booktown with a breakdown of the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants books and movies. Thank you for listening. Take it easy. 